Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for joining today for this presentation by the Amistad Project of the Thomas More Society. I want to thank the uh, Thomas More Society for their support. I'm Mark Serrano with Proactive Communications. Just a reminder, please, to uh, uh, exhibit social distancing, wear your masks as you move about the room. Uh, we are coming live to you today as well, live streaming. Uh, and we uh, welcome everyone for their time, uh, giving us their time today. Uh, you will see through our press release that we are providing our documents, our slides, uh, and the report that we're announcing today at got-freedom.org, got-freedom.org. Uh, and uh, we thank you for joining us for this very important announcement as we release a new report about the influence of Mark Zuckerberg's dark money network in the 2020 election. Leading our presentation today will be the director of the Amistad Project, Phil Klein. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. And thank all of you for attending. I appreciate your attendance today and coming out in this. I guess it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, which is kind of wonderful this time of year with the snow coming down. Again, my name is Phil Klein. I'm the director of the Amistad Project. And the 2020 general election witnessed an unprecedented and coordinated public-private partnership in swing states to improperly influence the election for Mr. Biden. This evidence that we're presenting today is present and available to all Americans so that they may see it and assess it, despite the effort of blue state governors and executive officials. The mainstream media has also tried to censor this evidence. Private interests and corporate oligarchs through social media have attempted to prevent the presentation of this evidence. Yet despite, despite all of those efforts to prevent the American public from seeing the truth, America understands that there are serious problems with these elections and its citizens are demanding that this not happen again, and that this investigation and the influence of private monies in this election through the purchase of local election officials and offices dictating how they manage the elections not ever happen again, and that we come to understand what occurred during this election. The report we are releasing today entitled the legitimacy and effect of private funding in federal and state election processes was commissioned by the Amistad Project of the Thomas More Society and completed by Stillwater Technical Solutions, whose principal, James Carlson, is with me on the stage. James is a prolific author and writer, and he additionally has influenced public policy at the national level with the Department of Interior, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Congress and the White House. His, his team has been working on uh, investigating the influence of private monies for some time now, and that report will be revealed to you today. The report details the flow of more than one half of a billion dollars more than the federal government expended in the CARES Act to fund the election during the COVID crisis by over $100 million more than the federal appropriation. This effectively is a shadow government running our elections. 
a half a million dollars into the hands of state and local officials who, in turn, allowed those private organizations and private interests to have access to sensitive and private information of American citizens that was of value to political parties and monetized for interests on the left. It also reveals how private parties, by dangling the dollar bill, incentivize local election officials to violate state law, radically alter election procedures, act contrary to federal law, and federal law and violate federal law under the Help America Vote Act. It involved a government, a government in a scheme to turn out a specific demographic of voter. And government engaging in turning out a specific demographic of voter is the opposite side of the same coin as government engaging in an effort to suppress turnout among a specific demographic. Such is not allowed under United States law and is a violation of equal protection and a violation of a prime precept in American law that all citizens need to be treated equally. As a legislator, I often had occasion to speak with groups of of individuals who would often give me this refrain. Why don't you run government like a business? To which I replied, government's not designed to be a business. It has a much different objective than a business. Government must treat all citizens equally. That means there's inefficiencies in government. It is inefficient in an election to have more than one candidate. You know, we see efficiency in elections in the former Soviet Union when they had one candidate and the elections were run very swiftly and the results were known. That is not the role of government to discriminate against certain persons and run the election efficient. It is to run it with fairness and transparency and access. And fairness and transparency and access are not the most efficient ways to count votes. It's much easier to let one person go in the room and determine the winner and come out and announce it than to actually allow America in the counting room. And instead, this time we run, we ran government like a business with a half a billion dollars of an oligarch's private monies dictating that America must be kicked out of the counting room while the billionaire was allowed inside the counting room. This report and the evidence we're going to share today demonstrates that Mr. Zuckerberg's funds flowing through charities paid for the election judges, paid for the satellite offices to turn out the vote, paid for the machines, and dictated the policies that undermine state law. No. The real question we need to ask when we talk about the size of government is whether a specific function is part of government's role. Or is it better done in the private sector? That's the real question. What is the scope of government's role? And government has the core responsibility of managing the elections. We don't put out elections for bid. We don't have elections brought to you by Coca-Cola. It is government's job to manage elections, and it must do so without a thumb on the scale and without private interest dictating how those elections are to be implemented. In other words, the question is not efficiency. The question is fairness. And the best antiseptic 
to a lack of fairness is transparency. Let me restate this because it is fundamental and an important point or the very purpose of all of our election laws. The best protector, the best protector of equality and fairness is transparency in the election process. Equality means counting every valid vote and the flip side of the same coin of equality means not counting every invalid vote. You know, I'm I'm reminded of of when the United States first opened up the Oklahoma Territory for settlement. And at the time, a lot of people lined up on what was the border of Kansas and they shot off a gun and they allowed them to rush in. That's where we get Oklahoma Sooners, by the way. People cheated, rushed in early and popped up and said, I claim this land, the, the Sooners. But people rushed in and they formed towns overnight. One of the first... Uh, uh, towns that was formed had to elect a mayor. So they had people stand in line, two lines. If you support this candidate, stand in this line. If you support this candidate, stand in this line. And then they appointed somebody to count as people walked by. And what they learned was some people were sneaking back in the line to be counted twice. And that's when they elected their first sheriff to be able to manage that election. And, And the point being that with transparency, we can discover fraud. With boarded-up windows and election officials kicking one party out, you can't discover fraud. And kicking a party out is a violation of election law. It is a direct violation of election law. And people don't violate the law without a reason. Now we have other means of transparency, and you might remember in our lifetime, in the Bush-Gore battles, looking at the hanging chads. Debating whether a dimpled Chad was an actual vote. That was valid because that election was transparent and America was in the counting room. You didn't get that opportunity in this election. You weren't in there. Mark Zuckerberg was. Again, the truth is that America was kicked out of the counting room and a billionaire was allowed in. This billionaire who gave over $500 million that we've been able to track and James has been able to identify in this election, poured most of that money through a charity entitled and named the Center for Tech and Civic Life. I I will now call this Zuckerberg's charity because I believe that if you give $350 million to one charity, you have the right to call it after yourself. And as I mentioned, Zuckerberg paid for the election judges He purchased the drop boxes contrary to state law. He ordered the consolidation of the counting facilities. Zuckerberg paid the local officials who boarded up the windows to the counting room. Zuckerberg money purchased the machines, Dominion and otherwise. And Zuckerberg money was contributed to secretaries of state like Michigan's Jocelyn Benson, who has fought transparency in this election by refusing to release computer logs and trying to bury forensic reports relating to those logs. That is not transparency. That is not the role of a Secretary of State. The Secretary of State's role is not to protect the vendor who, who manufactures the machines and distributes them. It's to forward the rights of Michiganders to a safe and fair election and a transparent election. Today, with this report and other evidence gathered by the Amistad Project, we're going to tell you this story. It is a story that should have already been told by the mainstream media. And I'm I'm convinced, and if we can move the slide, I'm sorry. There we go. 
It's a story that should have been told by the mainstream media and a story I'm convinced would have been told by the mainstream media if the billionaires had a different identity. If it was the Koch brothers, I don't believe that we would have to hold this news conference to reveal this truth. If it was the National Rifle Association putting in a half a billion dollars to purchase local election offices and incentivize officials to violate existing state law, we would not have to be holding this news conference. But because the mainstream media has a different agenda than the truth, we have to hold these news conferences and pray and hope that the American people will see past the censorship and the lies. There is no question whether there's evidence that dramatically impacted this election and incentivized people to violate election laws. That evidence has been demonstrated and it has been proven. We are obligated as Americans to share the truth when we uncover that truth. So if you can switch to the slides, please, I'm going to move this forward. As I mentioned, the American public can see through the fog and the smokescreen. Americans don't have confidence in this election. They know something was different. They know that the consolidated counting centers having work stoppages and the sudden flow of hundreds of thousands of ballots into one center radically altering the result is not normal. They know intuitively that putting hundreds of thousands of ballots in the drop box and not telling how those ballots got to the counting center breaks the chain of custody of the ballots and calls into question the legitimacy of the ballots. All of this knowledge has resulted in recently, if we can move the slide, this poll was given to us just yesterday. A Newsmax poll that shows that a majority of Americans believe that there was fraud in this election, despite the censorship. If you could move the slide and you look at 9% are unsure. That means they have questions about the election. If you combine that with those who believe that there was fraud, that's 54% of Americans contrasted with 45% of Americans. A majority of Americans believe there was fraud in this election. And let me tell you, to call into doubt this election, you don't have to prove fraud. That's a media concoction. You have to prove that election laws were violated. And that has been admitted to by officials. If we can move this slide, please. This is how the mainstream media has reporting, is reporting this evidence. Amid false claims of election fraud. Amid false claims. That is a pretense in the mainstream media before any report regarding the evidence, the admissions, the testimony of witnesses who say that there was fraud, say they participated in fraud, say they were trained to commit fraud, and election officials admitting they violated state election laws despite that, if we could go back to the screen. This precedes all reports. Amid false, that is a lie. That is a media lie. And Americans deserve better and they demand that journalists live up to the proud heritage of their profession. I received a phone call from a reporter from the Wall Street Journal who asked me this question. He said, Mr. Klein, how can you criticize the election process? You shouldn't criticize it. That undermines democracy. I laughed. 
The lifeblood of democracy is open discourse. The lifeblood of democracy is debate. The proud profession of a journalist is to criticize where government goes wrong. Every citizen in this nation has the right to stand up and proclaim criticism of its government. It is stunning to me that a member of the journalistic profession would say we shouldn't criticize the manner in which government conducted itself. That is stunning to me. Would we have ever uncovered Watergate? Would we have ever revealed the excesses of government in interning Japanese Americans? Would we have ever improved ourselves to the current condition where we recognize that not only men but women as well as those with different skin color have inherent and intrinsic rights to be protected by government without criticism of the government? That is frightening to me, this push towards cultural hegemony that asked us all to shut up because criticizing the process undermines the process. No, not in America, maybe in the former Soviet Union, maybe in totalitarian governments, maybe in those with those who want to hold on to power at all costs and don't want to reveal the truth. Maybe that criticism is valid from those persons. And what we see today is government managing itself in a way, unfortunately, that punishes criticism. I'll get to a little bit more of that in a little bit. If we can go back to the slides. The media. The media has had a false narrative all through this election. To not or to do everything possible to avoid looking at the truth. To avoid it. Let's talk about some evidence. To believe the media's portrayal that there is absolutely no evidence, I have to first explain the concept of evidence. If I showed up, if I, uh, as an investigator, and I oversaw the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, and if I showed up at your home, and I had a search warrant for documents that I believe revealed that you committed tax fraud, and it was a hot summer day, and I'm outside your home, and suddenly you board up the door, you don't allow us to come in, and I see smoke coming from the chimney? That's evidence. That's a pretty darn good conclusion that you're burning the documents so that the evidence will be destroyed. That is evidence, by the way. To believe what the media has to say, you have to believe that election officials confessing that they intentionally violated state law is not evidence of a problem in the elections. These admissions are found in every state. In Wisconsin, they admitted that they did not require identification on those who were indefinitely confined and that they did not check if those persons who were indefinitely confined were actually indefinitely confined. Instead, they ordered election officials to accept the claim, contrary to state law. Drop boxes, contrary to state law in Georgia. Mobile ballot pickups without chain of custody, contrary to state law in Pennsylvania. The way that they cured ballots in Pennsylvania was contrary to state law. And courts have found this, by the way. They have found this to be true. Additionally, in Michigan, 
the manner in which they removed Republicans, and the manner in which they cured ballots. And we'll speak about that more, and we'll get express details as it relates to these violations of law. So to believe the mainstream media, you have to believe that a confession is not evidence of what the person confessed to. You also have to believe, if we can go to the next slide, that a box is a human being. You have to believe that a box is a human being. Let me give you an example. I testified before the Wisconsin legislature recently, and I testified after a Mr. Knudsen, who's a Wisconsin election official. And he said, I know that the law says that we must deliver absentee ballots to the clerk. But what does that mean? What does clerk mean? Could it mean somebody that the clerk appointed? Or could it even mean a drop box? Now, you have to look to the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is where the law lives and breathes, and the purpose is clear. Delivering an absentee ballot to a person rather than an inanimate object allows the person to verify the legitimacy of the absentee ballot. So a person is not equal to a drop box. That is an admission of a willful and intentional evasion of the law. If I walked into this room and I had a gun, and I don't, by the way, and I pointed it at somebody's head and pulled the trigger and I said, oops, I didn't know what a gun did, who amongst you would believe that I am innocent of shooting that person? A drop box is not a human being. It's not a clerk. It is an inanimate object without the ability to make sure that that ballot that is cast is one that is valid. To believe the mainstream media in this, and I've pocketed my, you have to believe the next slide, please. Oh, here it is. You have to believe that the earth is the definition of place. Let me give you an example. Michigan law says that the uh, uh, place of the counting shall have present members of both major political parties. And remember that I said transparency is prophylactic to fraud. If you're not transparent, you can't prove the fraud. And what is happening in Michigan is the law allowed them to take ballots that could not be fed through the scanner because the paper all military ballots were printed on the wrong paper in Michigan because somebody might have torn it or they had a coffee stain and allows what's called election inspectors to look at that ballot and then fill out a new ballot for this person who's not there, cast it and count it. So they're casting votes for people who aren't there. That's why the law very wisely says both parties need to look at it to make sure it's done properly and sign off. And so what Michigan did in Wayne County is they formed a counting room. They consolidated it for the first time ever under Zuckerberg's plans. And they had 134 counting tables in a room the size of two football fields. And they said, we complied with the law. A Republican was in the place. He was in the cheap seats or she was in the cheap seats. And they couldn't even see what was happening at the tables. To believe that's not evidence of fraud, you have to believe that when the legislature passed the law saying a Republican must be in the place, they actually meant any place on the planet Earth. Clearly, that's not the purpose of the law. Clearly, 
that is an intentional violation of the law. Oops. But it gets worse. Michigan is under siege. Michigan executive officials are now using the power of government to threaten those with whom they disagree with. Bringing this evidence forward not only gets you the mockery by the mainstream media who refuses to report it, and now gets ethics complaints filed against you if you're a lawyer, where you have the attorney general, the chief law enforcement officer of the state of Michigan tweeting that those who bring these lawsuits need to be investigated ethically. Now, we've talked about the importance of a public discourse in a democracy. That doesn't allow public discourse. That is a chilling of public discourse. That is asking lawyers to put their fear above representing their clients in legitimate litigation. That is wrong. And I'm stunned that the Bar Association and other organizations of professionals in the legal community have not condemned this type of activity by the chief law enforcement officer in the state of Michigan, but it gets worse. The Michigan Attorney General threatened legislators with whom she disagreed with, with criminal prosecution. She tweeted it out and gave an interview that those legislators who might not agree with certifying the election could be investigated criminally by the chief law enforcement officer of the state of Michigan. Folks, that's totalitarianism. That is thuggery. It is stunning that America hasn't risen up with a uniform voice and state that when the state threatens people who are elected to be the voice of the people, with criminal prosecution, if they speak on the people's behalf, should be arrested. That's not the United States of America. Michigan is under siege. And it gets worse in Michigan. The electors met on December 14th at the Capitol building as required by law. The governor and others said that COVID restrictions prevented people from being present, but it's interesting how COVID only blocked Republicans from entering the Capitol on that day. Democrats entered. They selected their electors on the Senate floor. Republicans were barred at the door. But if you believe that COVID was the reason, let me show you that it really wasn't because, again, this is an admission. Governor Whitmer later said it wasn't COVID. If we can go to the next slide. She claimed, nope, back one. It was a security threat. She first claimed COVID, but then later it was a security threat. And she gave an interview to NPR on that security threat. Interesting, what security threat would allow Democrats in the building and Republicans not to go in the building? I'm uncertain. But this is what happened. That is Ian Northen, an attorney in Michigan. He's surrounded by Republican legislators and electors. 
who are being blocked by the two, one of the 200 police officers that Governor Michigan, I mean, the governor of Michigan, Whitmer, Governor Whitmer, mobilized to prevent them from coming in that building. The people's house was shuttered. It was closed. Governors don't dissolve parliaments or legislatures. Kings and queens do. That's not America. That's not the process. But later we learned, and we thank the Michigan police by revealing this truth. Afterwards, they say they're not aware of any threat that was given. That there was no credible threat. There was no basis for COVID. This was just a power grab that used the force of the state and the police power of the state to prevent Republicans from gathering on a day where they have the constitutional duty to review the election and to certify it so that only a select group of people were allowed in those hollowed halls. Folks, that chamber is not Governor Whitmer's chamber. It is the people's chamber. And that capital should be open to the people of the state of Michigan. This is frightening. And I hope people start to wake up to this. We got involved in the Amistad Project almost two years ago, um, concerns with election integrity, originally as it relates to the digital vulnerabilities of our elections. And we'll speak briefly about that a little bit later. But we started to see things change as we moved into the COVID concerns in the spring of 2020. And we saw governors starting to proclaim themselves to be not a part of the lawmaking process, but to be the law. And they said that they were exercising these emergency police powers for our benefit. Now, these powers, which are extraordinary, are only to be exercised at a time when democracy cannot function. When the legislature is in a bunker, or they're hiding, or they've been decimated by foreign attack. When, the demo- when democracy can function, we don't have a constitution that supports governors saying, I do not have faith in democracy. I'm not going to propose bills. I'm not going to have a public hearing. I'm not going to have debates about whether this is good for America. I'm going to dictate it. And what I believe that we're missing is that these dictates cover every aspect of human life. They cover whether you can be five foot 11 away from a person or six feet one. They cover whether you can attend a funeral, whether you can attend a wedding, whether you can have friends over for, for the holidays, whether you can visit a loved one who is dying. And when you pass laws that impact every aspect of human life, those laws are unenforceable. There's no police force large enough to enforce those laws. So what happens? They're only enforced against those who raise their voice against the government. And that's what you see happening in America today. Health uh, or workout areas where somebody says the government's wrong, suddenly they get raided. A barber in Michigan who says, wait a minute, I disagree with this. They get raided. You see government not only playing favorites in elections, playing favorites in who has economic vitality and whose business is going to be crushed. Big box stores are open, while church facilities of the same size cannot open. You have arbitrary enforcement. We got involved because Governor Whitmer herself threatened a group of black urban pastors with jail if they met to speak against cancel culture.
We represented that group called One Nation. She continued to threaten them with jail if they met or if they marched while she marched with Black Lives Matters. We see this example all across the nation and it violates a basic tenet of American law that all citizens have value and all citizens are, are to be treated equally and all voices have value in the American debate. We are trending the wrong direction out of fear. Fear has allowed them cover to become petty tyrants within their state. As we move through that process, we started to see the impact on elections as, as emergency orders started to change the election process. This is the report prepared by Stillwater. And it shows the flow of private monies on the top tier from leftist organizations through eight private 501c3s, as well as two quasi-public private entities demonstrating how they became the shadow government that managed the elections in the urban core. It was Mr. Zuckerberg and his money, the Democracy Fund, the Tides Foundation and the 1630 Fund, Arabella Investors and the New Venture Fund, Skoll Foundation, Mr. Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan and the Knight Foundation that we've discovered thus far that flowed these, money in, these monies in for this purpose. These monies dictated everything from how to uh, run the election to actually designing the ballot, designing the software for the poll books, encryption services for government. There's been a lot of discussion of hacking into our system. We were not hacked from without. We were hacked from within. ERIC, which is one of these organizations on the far left of the chart, they are an organization with various members that's a quasi-public-private entity that does our cybersecurity standards for elections. Next to that is the CSMR, the Center for Secure and Modern Elections. CSME, I'm sorry. They are working to get easy registration changes at the United States Post Office. So that when you change your address, you are automatically changed in registration. But has anybody checked how easy it is to fill out a change of address form at the United States Post Office? It undermines the integrity and the verification of the identity of the person who is registering to vote. CEIR, the Center for Election Innovation and Research. The Center for Election Innovation and Research received $50 million that we know of from Mark Zuckerberg. They authored the Pennsylvania voter registration system called SURE. And we have identified that alterations of that system occurred after the election, during a time when election challenges were being forwarded. The books were being cleaned up. $50 million to CEIR. 
they have, as you see on the sheet, they have access to driver's license information and are promoting an interface and sharing of driver's license information. They've teamed up with Democracy Works, who we believe, we haven't confirmed yet, has a contract with the United States Postal Service for complaints as it relates to the failure to receive ballots. That complaint information is valuable political information, and it's being shared with a select group of outsiders who then can share that information politically. The Center for Tech and Civic Life. This is what we're going to drill down on today. The Center for Tech and Civic Life. You will see the name Tiana Epps Johnson. She is all through this. Tiana Epps Johnson is also a member or has been a member of some of these other groups and heads up the Center for Tech and Civic Life. National Vote at Home Institute. You will see Jocelyn Benson, the Secretary of State of Michigan, is a part of the National Vote at Home Institute. They support vote by mail and home voting, which requires each individual voter to have the, the technology to print their own ballots. Imagine the lack of the chain of custody in printing your own ballots. And sharing this technology with the private sector is concerning in and of itself, because sharing the technology allows for the printing of ballots. The United States Vote Foundation, you've got the same funding, and they are seeking state directories and mailing lists, which can be privatized and used. Pennsylvania Voice, partners with Rock the Vote and online voter registration, access to the SURE system. You have to understand voter registration in the past was always done by the county clerk for three primary reasons. The county clerk had three checks against the county clerk's conduct. One, they were elected. And if they failed, they could be removed. Secondly, they had a geographic definition for what they were doing, which was easy to audit. Thirdly, they have accountability to you, the media, because they have to respond to FOIA requests and open record requests to keep them accountable. Rock the Vote does not. These private groups do not have to share anything with you on how they're managing registration. They are not held accountable politically in any fashion. You can't vote them out. And there is really no way to effectively audit their entries into the voter rolls. So we created a fundamental portal that is a flaw on the front end of voter registration in our nation. I'm not saying Rock the Vote did anything nefarious, but when you have all these volunteers for this organization, none of them approved directly by government to be able to do this, you invite fraud. If we can go to the next slide. Let's talk about CTCL. This is their top 21 grants. Again, that we've been able to discover because they're not an open organization. It reflects $81 million granted, every one of them to a city that Hillary Clinton or a county that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. $81 million. Let's move to the next slide, please. About March of 2020, we started to see a couple of things that were concerning regarding the election. One was a score of friendly lawsuits 
And I'll explain what I mean by that. The left initiated dozens, scores of friendly lawsuits to change the way the election was done. What I mean by a friendly lawsuit is when you sue an official knowing that they're going to agree with you so that they don't put up a defense to your claim and actually settle it and give you all that you're asking for. I'll give you an example in Virginia where the League of Women Voters filed suit saying that the witness requirement for absentee ballots under COVID was unconstitutional because it put people's health in jeopardy. That suit was filed against the Commonwealth of Virginia where the Attorney General of Virginia, a role I had in Kansas, was tasked with defending the suit. In the first paragraph of that lawsuit, the League of Women Voters actually quoted the Attorney General of Virginia saying that the witness requirement is probably a violation of the Constitution because it's unsafe in COVID. Within one week, he capitulated in defending the Commonwealth and agreed to a settlement that eliminated the witness requirement on absentee ballots. Those suits were filed across the nation, challenging not only the witness requirement, but deadlines of counting absentee ballots, the requirement of a postmark, the requirement that the ballots be given to a clerk. All of the protections of the absentee ballots were challenged by the left in litigation, claiming that COVID prevented them from being carried out. That happened in March. For the Attorney General of Michigan to say that those who disagree with her should be investigated criminally, where was she in March when those on the left were undermining state law? That was passed by the legislature. Now, I don't believe any of them should be criminally investigated, but certainly it should have been spoken of that these lawsuits were to undermine protection for the, for the integrity of the absentee ballot. Why do we have those protections? Because the absentee ballot is cast away from the polling place. When you vote in person, there are persons trained to measure whether you're being intimidated, whether you understand, whether you're being coerced or being misled. Away from the polling place, none of those protections are present. That's why President Jimmy Carter and James Baker said that most fraud occurs with the absentee or mail-in ballots. And we need to protect that. And that is why most all states have some protections like signature requirements to compare signatures, applications for absentee ballots, requirements of witnesses for absentee ballots. All of those were eviscerated in this election, either through friendly litigation or through Mark Zuckerberg's monies and the dictates of what they would do. David Plouffe, March 2020, Mr. Plouffe wrote A Citizen's Guide for Defeating Donald Trump. And on page 81 of that book, he said that it's going to come down to a block-by-block street fight in the urban core to turn out the vote if you're going to defeat Donald Trump. At the time, he was working for Mark Zuckerberg. He's Obama's former campaign manager. Not long afterwards, we started to see CTCL, which has averaged about 1.2 million a year, suddenly reaching out to create grants, and they started calling Democrats. The Democrat mayor of Racine, Wisconsin, was contacted, and they said, look, we're going to give you, it was $100,000 total, but you're going to turn around and you're going to recruit Green Bay, Kenosha, Madison, and Milwaukee. Give them $10,000 each. So that they, the five of you can come up with a plan and we got more money coming. So this small group gave up about 8% of its annual revenues to one city. And they knew more was coming because they were granting 
monies to recruit other cities. And they told them which cities to recruit. And with that, these five cities came up with, and that's pretty remarkable, the Wisconsin Safe State Voting Plan. Now, you have to understand that federal law requires every state to come up with their own voting plan. They have to submit that plan to the federal government. In return, they receive federal dollars. They cannot change that plan unless they have public hearings. That plan requires that they treat every voter equally and disperses the funds in that fashion. Here, five cities claim to have their own Wisconsin safe voting plan, and this was developed with Mr. Zuckerberg's money. In that safe voting plan by these five cities, which they claimed for the whole state, they said they wanted to, and all of the effort is really to turn out the vote in these Democrat cities. It's not safety. It's turning out the vote. Encourage an increased absentee ballot. Provide assistance to, to those filling out the ballots. They actually hired witnesses for the ballots because the absentee ballot required witnesses. How do you witness a ballot being filled out by a person whom you do not know. We generally require notaries to do that, not hired witnesses by Democrat officials. Deploy additional staff and technology improvements, and that was all paid for by Zuckerberg, and expand in-person curbside voting. I want to take a moment and have James step up here. Um, well, wait, I'm sorry, James. Wait a second. I think it's a little bit later. Here are the grant numbers. Well, no, come on, come on up here. That's in Wisconsin Safe Voting Plan, James. Tell them about these grant numbers. Okay. okay. Good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the press, American American people. My name is James Carlson. I have the privilege to serve the Amistad Project and the American people. This slide right here in front of you is the Wisconsin, from the Wisconsin Safe Voting Plan of 2020. And going from the vertical axis to your left, you'll see encourage and increase absentee voting by mail. So those are actually directives. Dramatically expand strategic and voting education, launch poll worker recruitment, training and safety, and ensure safe and efficient election day and administration. What you have here is a plan that was developed by the four cities in Wisconsin to submit to CTCL in, in exchange for grant contracts. And so that's what's in front of you here. And there are cities, it's actually five, Green Bay, Kenosha, Madison, Milwaukee, and Racine. And so working across, you, you begin to see the, the amount of dollars that are, are, have been allocated to, to these cities. Now, to give a little context to this, Phil mentioned the, the HAVA plan the, and the, the Help America Vote plan. And so, so I'll back out just a little bit and describe that for, for you to, so that we can understand that. The, the Congress appropriates money to the Elections Administration Commission, who EAC, who in turn disseminates that money to the various states under what are called state implementation plans. Those are HAVA implementation plans. They're adopted by the leg- various legislatures. And then, and, those, and then the commissions, the various commissions from each of the individual states – those commissions now are responsible for administration of elections throughout the various states. And so that's how the system works. 
Here we have private money that was in, injected at the at the last minute by by private by private entities. Now it's important. One of the the basic questions it's a basic civics question that I think we should ask here, and that is 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 it legitimate to allocate private money for public elections? Very, very basic question. Can you legitimately allocate and inject private money into public elections? So that's what we have here in front of us in the safe voting plan, Phil, in, in, uh, uh, of Wisconsin. And James is going to come up in a minute and explain to you um, how these cities already had adequately, adequate funding from the federal government to implement these plans. And I want you to notice, though, how much money is allocated towards voter turnout. This money is going to a Democrat stronghold to provide voter turnout, while at the same time they primarily claim this money was necessary because of COVID. Voting absentee, this is from the safe election plan by these five cities in CTCL. You'll see that they see that state law or they claim state law is an impediment. Voting absentee by mail has been complicated by the imposition of state law requiring voters to provide voter ID. So in other words, they are planning on ways to circumvent or undermine that law passed by the state legislature. That's not the role of the cities. They should not be doing that. Here is um, Philadelphia. And we obtained these documents pursuant to court order in the Middle District of Pennsylvania. We sued over this, and our lawsuits are still proceeding. They're not going to be done anytime soon to affect the current election. They're going to take months and years to litigate. But we have sued CTCL regarding this because, as James mentioned, we believe it's pretty clear that privatization and incentivization of election offices is not lawful. Now, I'm not saying that's a crime. That's a different thing. I'm saying it's not lawful under our laws relating to election integrity and the manner in which elections will be conducted. They dictate to the city of Philadelphia that you'll have 800 or more in-person polling places on election day. That's a requirement for the grant. And here you have the city and commissioners will have secure drop boxes. It requires and dictates drop boxes to be available. And drop boxes, again, require a chain of custody that was not provided in Philadelphia or Allegheny County or Pittsburgh or any of those areas. Satellite election centers. This is significant in Philadelphia because that was a specific term that CTCL dictated that they have. Not satellite polling places, satellite election offices. Now, the satellite election offices actually received ballots. They acted as a polling place, but the city argued with Zuckerberg funds, that because they were called satellite, no Republican needed to be present. Because the law required members of both parties to be present in polling places. And even though these performed the same function, they were not called polling places. They were called satellite offices. Again, transparency is lost. This is... CTCL's math and how they involve themselves in Virginia and a couple of things about it when we started criticizing them their response was we gave to more Trump counties in Virginia than we gave to Clinton well that is technically true they gave to 13 Trump counties that he won in 2016 a small amount of money 
They gave to eight Clinton counties, large amounts of money. Hillary Clinton only won eight counties in Pennsylvania in 2016. They gave 100%. They gave to all of the Clinton counties. They gave to 13% of the Trump counties. And they gave millions, early, early money, planned money to the Clinton counties, late, small amounts, after receiving criticism to the Trump counties. Here's how it played out. I'll take you to Delaware County, Pennsylvania, one drop box for every four square miles. That's two miles by two miles square. That's you could walk out the door and stroll and vote. Plus, they had mobile pickup units and they had 800 satellite offices in, in Philadelphia. In the 59 counties that Trump won, one drop box for every 1,159 square miles. At the same time, Governor Wolf was shutting down in-person polling places. All of you know that Republicans prefer to vote in person on election day and Democrats prefer to vote in advance. They were making it easier to vote in Democrat strongholds, harder to vote in Republican strongholds. In Democrat strongholds, go for a stroll or wait for somebody to pick up your ballot. In Republican areas, go on a weekend vacation and engage in a where's Waldo hunt for a drop box. That's wrong. That's government putting its thumb on the scale. And then there's this. A clawback agreement in every bit contract that CTCL did with Mark Zuckerberg money that says, if you do not follow our plan, we're going to take back our money. All of it. You have to do what we say. And James, if you could step up and talk, uh, explain to them how that undermines the financial integrity of these cities that receive the monies. The word, think of it this way, it's, it, the, the word clawback um, implies a visual, claw back. And so we found the clawback provisions in the CTCL contracts that were executed with local local governments, local pre, uh, pre, uh, local electoral officials, and these, these, these contracts, the CTLC contracts with clawback provisions, had within them specific language that re, that – that said, you you must spend you the the electoral officials must spend the money on specific things drop drop boxes, um, um, drop boxes satellite uh, satellite satellite votings. There, there was a whole host of things that you were that, that were the stipulations in the clawback back uh, agreements. And so what what we have here is is a what you have here is a a private agency giving money to a local elected official and entering into a contract requiring those the, the these local precincts and electoral electoral officials to do specific things. There again you have blending of private and public entities. That's the issue. And so the, in terms of the clawback, they had stip, stipulations for absentee ball, ballots in, in uh, Dropbox locations, like I said, and, and, uh, um, and plans and maps. But there, were, there was something else that we saw in our report, and I really encourage you to, to obtain and re- read the report. And that is that the contracts over time, the, the contract to Philadelphia, which was $10 million dollars, there was a $10 million grant that was given to the, the city of Philadelphia for executing st- safe and secure elections. What we saw over time is the language in, in the Philadelphia CTLC contract, and there's a link to that contract in the report, is we saw over time that those, those contracts became more and more vague. The clawback 
provisions were still there, but they became more vague. They became more opaque after the lawsuits came out and after some light, public light and public scrutiny became began to fall on CTCL. So we saw that, so that's, that's one problem. The second thing is, and this is, this is probably for local governments, something that if you are the recipient, a local government that was recipient of CTCL funding that you should consider, is that grant, the clawback provisions actually could impose a future liability on your county that could impact your bonding? That could they, that CTCL if they were if they came and required that money back, it, it's it's conceivable that your county could face a future liability for the money if CTCL asked for that money back and and chose to exercise that clawback provision. Thank you, James. And these these grant requests generally require a report by the end of the year by the cities, and it gives CTCL the sole discretion as to whether to demand the return of the funds. This is the Philly grant agreement that we obtained pursuant to court order and the plan identified by Philadelphia. And you see right there that in each satellite office, they're going to have these persons, judge of elections, two inspectors, one clerk, and one machine inspector. By the way, again, the machines were purchased by Zuckerberg money. And... Just a, a brief comment by, about the machines. You can't see inside a box. You know, we used to have elections where you dropped your ballot in a box, and to count them, you had to open the box. Well, the way you open the box of a computer is to get access to the computer logs. Every forensic computer person will tell you that. You have to have access to the logs. And guess what? The Secretary of State of Michigan and others are trying to prevent America to have access to. The logs. They're not letting you see inside the machines. The very machines that count America's votes, they don't want you to see inside. It's like saying, we get to look inside the box, but you don't. That's not right. Who accepts that as a transparent election? Why don't we ask the next question? Why can't we see inside the box? Just recently, there was a forensic report relating to Dominion machines out of Antrim County, Michigan. That report was very, very critical of the functioning of the machines. It identified several flaws in how they managed the election such that the election would not be certified under federal law. Guess who fought the release of that forensic report? The Secretary of State of Michigan. Why? Why will they not allow us to see inside the box purchased by Mark Zuckerberg? It's a pretty fundamental question. And I hope some of you ask it soon. But here they're paying the election judges. They're paying the election inspectors. They're paying the people. Zuckerberg money is paying the people that determine what ballots to count and how they're going to be counted and the machines that tabulate them. CTCL has tried to engage in a PR campaign to respond to this. This is from their own site. And this is how they say that they allocated the monies. You'll see drop boxes and drive-through voting. Look at the staffing. Most of it has been to pay election officials or additional absentee ballot supplies and training and encouragement for voters to engage in absentee ballots and voter education. Safety is one of the last 
and least funded concerns. There's something else as it relates to that that's important to recognize. Zuckerberg money also consolidated the counting centers. So what used to be a small room based on a ward became a football-sized complex facility based on a city. They claimed they needed to do that for COVID. But what it really did, and it doesn't make much sense, by the way, to create a crowd for COVID. What it did do is allow them to put Republicans on the outside so they couldn't see what was happening on the inside. And it additionally allowed for hundreds of thousands of ballots to be brought to one location. How did they do that? We just know that a week or two ago, we had Jesse Morgan on this stage, a truck driver out of Pennsylvania, who testified on an affidavit that he picked up a load of completed ballots in Bethpage, New York, drove them across the state line of New York to New Jersey, New Jersey to Pennsylvania, and when he finally delivered them, all kinds of things didn't go normally. And then his trailer disappeared with a quarter of a million completed ballots from Beth Page. We corroborated his story by speaking with an, an expediter, a dock worker in Beth Page, New York, who stated that she saw this happen on multiple occasions. Ballots being loaded on trucks from a facility that doesn't even receive mail to process it. It only deals with bulk packaging. We have turned over that information to the Postal Service Office of Inspector General. And to date, the only investigation I'm aware of that they've done is to try to question Jesse's mother during a week when she was burying her own mother who died from stroke and speaking to Jesse's ex-wife. American institutions are failing. Faith in Americans, uh, our institutions, is at an all-time low. It appears that people are not doing their job. And I would hope that you and the media would help us make sure that these persons and institutions do their job. James, if you could step up here and explain how these cities had sufficient funding and didn't need the CTCL money. Our, our first question was, is it legitimate, is it legitimate to have it to in, allow private money into public elections? So that was our first question. Our second question, and this is woven throughout through the report, these are, these are the questions that, that we address. Our second question was, was public funding adequate to administer the 2020 general elections and the and, and, and indeed the elect, elections process um, in, in its entirety. So the chart you have before you is is the comparison of government funding and, and CTCL grant funding. So here's a comparison from from the report and it's it's on page nine. And basically what this what this slide tells you is you have Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin on the x-axis there on the left and 2020 HAVA plus CARES funding. Now it's important to understand that you had HAVA funding that is part of the electoral process and 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 um, appropriated by the Congress through through the through the EAC and then to the individual state legisl or individual state commissions. 
And then you had CARES funding, which was uh, appropriated to respond directly to coronavirus, the coronavirus itself and the recovery. And so you had, and, and also electoral purposes. And so you had the combination of those two, and I had two, I had two other slides as well. The combination of that funding in Michigan, will you just use that as an example, and, and, you, and we, can, we can just use that as an example. But the combination of funding for HAVA and CARES funding is, was $28 million and, and about $28,023,000 uh, and, and some change. And so you, you go over to the next slide, and the CTCL, oh, oh yeah. Sorry. But, yeah, so, so you go over to the next column. And you have the CTCL grants, and, and those were that were awarded into Michigan. Okay, so these are actual grant monies that were awarded to various cities throughout Michigan and accepted and received by local officials. And that's really, really important as well. We had local electoral officials who were opting and choosing to to take CTCL money, private money, in lieu of available federal funding. Okay, so that's an important point. And then, and so in, in the case of Michigan, they, they, they accepted $6,369,753. So, um, and these are all facts that came from the EAC's website, and there's links on the, uh, hyperlinks on the report that go let, right let to the government what, report. I'm sorry, James. No, let me yeah. know what the EAC is. Oh, uh, the EAC is the uh, Elections Administration Commission. Elections Assistance Commission. Yeah. And, and so the take-home message from this slide for Michigan is that the CTCL grants that were awarded into Michigan comprised about 22% of the, of the funding available. Now, one of the things I'll tell you ahead of time, and then I'll demonstrate it through the charts, is that you actually had CTCL and private funding that supplanted available government funding. So there was plenty of government funding available absent any private funding whatsoever. And that's counter to the CTCL narrative. You'll see that they, they, they came out very early on and said we need to fund elections, we need to fund electoral processes, we've got COVID, we've got all these things going on. And so we, we want to be, uh, we want through our 501c3 charity, donate money through local in local electoral officials or, or, or give money to local electoral officials. But yet there was plenty of funding available. So next slide, please. Okay, here in this one, we have HAVA and CARES funding plus state matching funds. So again, we'll just stay with Michigan. In 2019, the HAVA carryover. So in Michigan, that's, that, that's the state we're talking about. In Michigan, you have a six, $6.6 million carryover from 2019 into 2020. So that, that was unspent HAVA funds that, that came, rolled over into 2020. And then you, the Michigan, the Michigan secretary, who is the officer in charge of HAVA, that's uh, Jocelyn Benson in Michigan, received another $12 million. And then this, there's a state match requirement. And so, and then CARES funding. And so the total here into Michigan available for administration of elections throughout the 2020 general election cycle was 34,689,000 and some change. So there's, that's, that's the number that, that's the money that's available for administration of elections, 2020 elections and electoral processes in Michigan. Plenty of money available. Next slide, please. Okay. And so here, this one, this one um, is the actual expenditures. So we had money, money, money that was allocated, federal money that was allocated through HAVA and CARES. 
And this slide actually demonstrates the expenditures. And so the, the amount appropriated from our previous slide was 11 million, about $11.3 million. The state match was 2.2. And the initial total available for administration was about $13.5 million. Now, what's important about this is that you had the expenditure, they, the state of Michigan only spent 6.8 million dollars of the available public funds, which is which is about 49 percent. And instead, what you had, and th- and this these are EAC charts from the federal government. There's hyperlinks in the report. But what's in? And by the way, we're, when we talk about the report, that we're, we're authors. You know, always kind of promote their own work. So, so sorry if I, I'll stop saying that too much. But um, the here, the available funds. Here's the take-home message from this slide. This is really, really important. Is only 50% of the the monies were spent as of September of 2020, and instead you had the Secretary Benson and the electoral officials coming out and promoting private funding for public elections. That's 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 a very very important in lieu of public funds that ample fu- public funds that were available. Thank you, James. And in anticipation of the question, I want to move back, and you see the thirty-four million six eighty-nine from Michigan there, but that includes other funding in addition to CARES, which was passed in March twenty twenty. You go here, and James is only mentioning the CARES funding, and there you see that eleven million again. Two ninety nine. So just out of the CARES appropriation, Michigan still had six point seven million dollars available to it for the 2020 election or 49 percent of its funding when it accepted a CTCL grant. So absolutely demonstrates there was not a need for this private funding at this time and that all of these cities should have been treated equally with the other cities in the state of Michigan as it relates to the management of the election. If we can go to the next slide. Oh, I'm the one controlling it. Going through and identifying um, the uh, violations of state law by state. And it's important to note that these violations occurred everywhere there was Mark Zuckerberg money. Everywhere there was Zuckerberg money, Arizona, um, they uh, they failed to to comply as it relates to the chain of custody on drop boxes, and additionally they allowed people to vote at addresses where they were no longer residing because of the drop boxes. Georgia, you have several examples of how they violated uh, uh, state law. I would encourage all of you to look at articles recently published in Georgia regarding drop boxes um, and additionally Georgia responses to drop boxes by Michael Patrick Leahy, who is a journalist who's been demanding this chain of custody logs that he's not getting forthcoming as it relates to Georgia law and the drop boxes. These chain of custody are required by election laws and they're not being provided. Who picked them up? When? How long did it take them to deliver them? Did they have two persons per key? Those types of answers are not being provided. Wisconsin violated several aspects of law, and I mentioned some of them. One was the clerk who said, or the elections official, Mr. Knudsen, he said, I don't understand the definition of the word clerk. It could mean a box. 
where the law in Wisconsin is very clear. You must deliver ballots directly to the election clerk. Um, and there's other examples as it relates to uh, those who are indefinitely confined, do not need to show voter ID. The Wisconsin Supreme Court actually chastised election officials on two occasions, saying that you must follow the law, that these persons have to be actually indefinitely confined before you excuse them from the voter ID requirement. In Michigan, there were problems with curing the ballots. Uh, in that they excluded people from watching the curing process. They excluded people from being able to watch the management of the ballots. And again, breaking the chain of custody as it relates to drop boxes. I believe the story in Georgia, by the way, indicates that there are over 500,000 ballots cast by drop, through drop boxes in which there's no chain of custody provided. Pennsylvania. Um, I, I'll describe this briefly, but there's much more, and you can get this afterwards. In Pennsylvania, the Democrat areas that had Zuckerberg money decided to cure ballots contrary to state election law. Election law says that if the absentee ballot is not completed in a proper fashion, that it is not to be counted. But Democrat officials in these strongholds took these ballots, set them out in the hallway, and asked party officials to come pick them up and fix them, fix other people's ballots, which they did. In Republican strongholds, that was not done because, one, they believed it was against the law. But secondly, they didn't have the resources because they didn't have the Zuckerberg money to hire people to manage that process. So, again, in Democrat strongholds that went 85 to 90 percent for Mr. Biden, you had people fixing ballots. In Republican strongholds that went predominantly for Mr. Trump, there was no fixing of the ballots. That, again, is a violation of equal protection. That's just one example in Michigan. This report, I would encourage you to read it. As Mr. Carlson stated, it has hyperlinks to all the sources of information. It does constitute evidence of lawlessness in this election. And I would just simply say this. Unless, this is not a Republican or a Democrat issue. It's an American issue. When the leading democracy in the world cannot conduct its elections in a transparent and fair manner, that is a threat to democratic republics around the world. There are serious, serious questions that must be asked. We must persist in the, to get the answers to those questions, regardless of the objections of state officials who don't want us looking inside the box. There has been this false rush to declare who won the presidency that is not required by our Constitution. Our Constitution contemplates election disputes. It allows certain challenges and time to be able to determine whether the election was conducted lawfully and fairly and has an accurate result. These deadlines that we keep talking about of the Electoral College are, are done and passed through Congress statute. They can't override the Constitution. Moreover, primarily they were done out of convenience. They were last amended in 1945. If you go back far enough, the election date was determined based upon when the harvest was come in, would come in. And the meeting of the Electoral College was based on how long it took to ride a horse to Washington, D.C., why in the world should we allow those deadlines to prevent a full-scale understanding of this election? 
Moreover, there is another challenge to American democracy right now. And that is, under Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1 of the United States Constitution, legislatures are given the primary responsibility in determining the electors. That means they have the responsibility of reviewing the election to make sure that it was lawful and also fair. And exhibits a result in which we can have faith. But now, they're not even allowed to meet Since Election Day, legislatures around this country are prohibited from meeting. They can't even meet to review the election or debate it. The the institution that has the primary constitutional responsibility is prohibited from even meeting. In some states, it requires the governor to call them into session, and the governor refuses. So in other words, a small group of people can prevent those elected by the people from actually meeting and having a full-scale discussion in both House and Senate about the legitimacy of the election. That's not democratic. Shuttering the doors of the people's house is not democratic. Only allowing one party in the, in the state capital of Michigan is not democratic. Only allowing one party, wherever Mr. Zuckerberg's money's touched, to be able to handle and watch the counting of the ballots is against election law. And it's the obligation of every American to make sure this does not happen again and to ensure that we get at the facts and the truth about this election. And I would invite you to join us in that effort because we're not going to stop until we do. Thank you. you please respond to your questions? Questions? Yeah. And I, if you're comfortable doing that, or I could repeat it. Okay. I would say this, a couple of things regarding that. First of all, as as James mentioned and we mentioned earlier, there is a state plan. The legislature has the responsibility. So they pass a state plan that treats every voter equally. And those funds have to be used consistent with equal protection and consistent with that state plan. For example, in Wisconsin, before the Zuckerberg money, generally each jurisdiction received 4 to $7 a voter to manage the election. You know, there's some offsets because of additional costs, depending on where you're located. But that has to be followed by the city. The Zuckerberg money? No. That is a direct agreement with a private entity. And, for example, the receipt of these five cities of these funds gave them up to $47 a voter to manage the election, as contrasted with the 4 to $7 that the state gave. What... what Mr. Carlson's point was, is that there was available additional money for them to do this funding and manage the election consistent with federal and state law. But they got private money. And that private money was spent in a way that it created a two-tier election system. 
and also help them evade state laws as it relates to voter ID requirements, absentee ballots, and so forth. So technically, this is legal for them to do? No, we don't believe it is. Not at all. Here's their response. Nothing in the law prohibits it. But there are things that prohibit it. First of all, federal, the states are required to follow the plan they submit under federal law. They can't deviate from it unless they have a public hearing, and you all have a right to ask questions about it. Second, federal law prohibits a disparate treatment of voters based on demographics. Thirdly, and, and this is kind of a, it's a long-standing rule of law, but cities are creatures of the state. The state holds the power, not the cities. And the cities can't step out of what the state requires unless they have express authority to do so. So it's not that the law doesn't prohibit it. It's that the law doesn't allow it. And therefore, it's contrary to state and federal law. Then does Congress need to do a law that specifically prohibits? No. No. It's, it's kind of like the debate about a place in Michigan. You know, do we need a new law that says that at the counting facility, there must be a, a representative of both political parties in the place of the counting? Well, you would not think that we would need that unless people tortured what the definition of place is by replacing the purpose of the law to allow people to see with a strained definition that place means the planet Earth. And since there's a Republican on the planet Earth, we've complied with the law. We did not have to do that in America until we deconstructed truth and deconstructed the meaning of words to the point that words don't mean anything. So therefore, we can shape them for whatever purpose we want and use them as a tool to get what we want. I would hope we're not completely at that place, that Americans still retain some common sense, understand what the purpose of the law is, and effectuate the purpose of the law, if we lose that, we're speaking different languages and we can't agree anymore. It's just a power struggle. I don't believe we're there. I hope that answers your question. It does. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for holding this. I'm just wondering about uh, what's happening in Georgia right now. Obviously, with the runoff, um, there's a lot of people concerned about the integrity of the election there. Is this apparatus operating in full scale? Um, are other issues being addressed before the election in Georgia? We're seeing the same problems occur again. We are seeing Dropbox use. We're seeing Zuckerberg monies. We're also seeing the recruitment of people to move from one state to the next um, to register to vote in Georgia, which is concerning because all of us have an equal right to select our United States Congress. And they're actually inviting persons such that, for example, you could have voted for a United States senator in a state where the U.S. Senate seat was up and now move and vote for a second United States senator? No, that's not allowed. There are all kinds of problems with how Georgia is managing its elections, how they're handling absentee ballots, and we anticipate filing in Georgia to try to prevent some of these things from happening again. One of the challenges we had in suing the Center for Tech and Civic Life and the use of Mr. Zuckerberg's monies before the election is that the harm can't be proven until after the election. And you have to prove harm to have what, you, what is called standing with the courts. But now we've seen what this causes, and we're hopeful 
that the court will recognize that the breaking of the chain of custody, all of this evidence that the the ballots uh, cannot be audited or traced back, will cause the court to say, whoa, wait a minute, this is wrong. I have to say that I'm deeply concerned about our courts. I'm concerned about their unwillingness to engage in what is clear evidence of violation of state legislature mandates on elections. Um, I somewhat understand it. They want to wash their hands of things and say it's a political issue. You go fix it. But we've had an unprecedented election with private interests dictating how elections will be managed. It's never happened like this in United States history. It demands a, a judicial response. I'm not confident we will get it because, unfortunately, in some ways, the court has become political as well. And I get, that ties in with my last question is um, how did we sort of get to this point where we see so many issues coming out of the election? Was it a breakdown in the judicial system, no enforcement over a long period of time? Is it the executive branch? Is it How did all of this sort of mess come about? Well, in a broad sense, I'll say this, and forgive me if I'm redundant and I've already said this. I believe one of our nation's greatest strength is America gets what it wants. And one of our greatest weaknesses is is America gets what it wants. I believe the American people have chosen distraction and noise rather than the hard work of digging down and understanding the truth and then demanding a response to the truth as we learn it. That demand has to come to our elected officials. It has to come from the American people. Our legislatures and our Congress have been deficient in watching and making sure our elections are conducted properly, consistent with law. We have privatized things to the point that election officials have no direct control over what happens. And in some ways, they've enjoyed that because they get to wash themselves of responsibility and say, it wasn't my fault. You know, you pass a law that says elections will be fair, and then you claim credit for passing the law without actually ensuring that they are fair. And I'll say this. We didn't anticipate this. Who can anticipate we'd be arguing over the meaning of the word place or whether a human being is a box? So those, that erosion in our culture, in, in the understanding of truth, was not anticipated in law. So in some ways, I don't foist all the responsibility on the legislature, but they need to wake up because the truth is right now, and we will be filing litigation in this regard, right now, the primary body with the responsibility of determining the outcome of the presidential election under the Constitution is state legislatures, and they can't even meet. Since November 3rd, they haven't been able to meet. What vigilance is that? to have the responsibility of determining whether the election was fair and lawful and then never meeting to determine whether the the election was fair and lawful. That, all of those things have contributed to allowing this to be, and, and, and it can't happen again. It can't happen again. So my understanding in speaking with legislators and others is they don't, they are committed to it not happening again. And I would hope Democrats, once we get past, is it Trump or Biden, we've got to get towards how do we do fair elections? And that's going to take both parties. 
And we've got to stop this rhetoric and journalists have to do their job. Journalists have to insist on it and not just accept simple responses. Well, that follows you. That follows into my question. We've seen the mainstream media basically go silent on all this covering other than the great outlets that are here today. Have we heard a response from Zuckerberg about all of this? And my second question is, there's millions of Americans out there that have not seen this information. And if they saw this information, maybe their outlook on the election would change. And so if and when all of this is reversed, it kind of makes it a little easier to take knowing of all the corruption that was involved. So how do we get this information out and how can people understand it so that they can process what needs to be changed? Well, well, thank you. And thank you for being here. That's so vitally important. You know, there are two things you need to control if you're going to control a nation. The flow of information and how a nation elects its leaders. And Mr. Zuckerberg has checked both boxes. Moreover, some of those leaders that he has put in place are advocating continued shutdowns and restrictions on American freedoms. That is enabling one of the largest shifts in wealth in United States history. Mom and pop businesses are dying. Chain businesses, big box stores, Amazon, all of those groups are flourishing. We're close to creating a corporate oligarchy in this nation. And I do believe this. I believe once you get past mainstream media, and if you can capture the interest of the American, as we saw with the polling, over half of Americans, 54%, if you consider those who are unsure, believe that there was some problem with this election. I believe there's a larger number than that if they get their information and take the time to challenge the information that they receive rather than just receive it. So I do believe that this nation has the deepest reservoir of an understanding of the importance of a democratic republic and the belief that all persons are created equal than any nation on the face of the globe. Communicating with them, letting them see the danger. And I would encourage them to do this. I would encourage them not to think about how this is affecting me directly. Not only to focus on that, but to focus how it's affecting others. Because what tyrannies do is they tick off those and, and limit the rights of those who are challenging them. They don't take on an entire society. They take on a portion of the society. And then they spread and take on others. And what we're seeing right now with the actions of the Attorney General of the state of Michigan, the actions and comments of the Secretary of State, the shuttering of the state capitol by Governor Whitmer, are the first steps in trying to limit Dissent. Dissent. That should awaken every American. We all need to fight for each other's right to speak. And we need to also challenge this belief that flattening the curve has to become crush the dream. We need to protect our vulnerable and not quarantine the healthy. We need to allow the science to flow through state legislatures and not emanate from the mouths of executive officials who have rendered the state legislature impotent in debating policy that affects every American life. 
And we need to teach the importance of those basic values that are American. So I'm not sure I answered your question, but that's what we we must continue to do. Any other questions? Um, Yes. Thank you. Um, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Michigan's uh, Secretary of State's recently, I think it was yesterday, had a big Zoom call. They broadcasted it on C-SPAN. And they talked about how it was extremely secure. It was a historic level of security of the election. What would you say to them? (laughs) How many of you believe that? I mean, if it was, why not open the door? If it was, why is Secretary Benson trying to prevent the release of a forensic report relating to the machines? If it was, why weren't Republicans allowed in the counting room? If it was, why not explain why a half a billion dollars of private money dictating the manner in which elections were to be run was allowed into the management of the elections? You know, all of these secretaries of state have acted contrary to their expressions. I have never investigated somebody. And again, I'm not saying that this is criminal, okay? It's important to understand that. There's a difference between violating... Um, statute that protects the integrity of the elections and committing a crime. There's a profound difference. And you don't have to prove a crime to prove that the election didn't follow the law or invite fraud. But I've never investigated anybody who was guilty who wanted me to see the evidence that they possessed and controlled. And I've never investigated anybody who was innocent who didn't want me to see the evidence that proves their innocence that they possess and control. Open up the doors. If it is that safe, let's get the ballots. We can take ballots and we can take envelopes and it's very easy to do forensic analysis to determine whether they were fraudulently cast. If it was done fairly, why was there the intentional destruction of the chain of custody of ballots from drop boxes? If it was done fairly and openly and securely why do we have affidavits of people who were who said they were taught to commit fraud democrat employees of democrat cities saying they were trained to commit fraud if it was done fairly then where is jesse's trailer a quarter of a million filled out ballots disappear on a trailer that has gps And they can't find it? They'd rather speak to his mother and his ex-wife. If these things were done fairly, they would be acting much differently. So I have my doubts. And by goodness, as an American citizen, I have a right to have my doubts. All of us do. 54% of Americans do. And we have the right to answers. Not this, don't worry, nothing's going on. There's no fraud here. It doesn't cut it. Okay, thank you. Uh, I have two questions. First one is that, um, are you going to uh, make a, file a lawsuit on all these illegal issues? And uh, if you do, or you don't, is there anyone who is eligible to make, uh, make, file all these lawsuits on these illegal things. 
And um, my second question is that, uh, in, date, in addition to these domestic uh, issues, have you ever found any um, evidence or clues that the foreign agencies or entities get involved? Thank you. Okay. Um, the first question is, are we going to file litigation? And we've got, we've got another filing we're going to do later this week. By the way, just recently we filed in every state a demand of these swing states to preserve all evidence to stop the shredding like what went on in Cobb County, to prevent the current erasing of digital data that was ordered, for example, by the Secretary of State of Michigan on December 1st to erase some poll book information, to prevent all of that. My, my wife is giving me signs. I can't tell what you're trying to tell me, dear. Fourth. December 4th, thank you. Not December 1st, December 4th, thank you, um, that the Secretary of State of Michigan ordered. So, um, uh, but we are also filing litigation, and, and here's what this litigation is, is that these state legislatures have delegated their responsibility under the Constitution unlawfully to the executive branch because they can't even meet right now to determine whether the election was conducted properly. And a legislature violates the separation of powers when it gives all of its power away to another branch of government. The separation of powers was a primary design in the United States to prevent government from eroding personal freedoms. We wanted debate. We wanted challenges. We wanted these groups to wrestle with one another in power to kind of constrain government in many ways from infringing on personal freedom. And our lawsuit that we'll be filing tomorrow or within a couple of days says that it was improper for the legislature to give all of this power away so it can't even meet at this important time after an election. And your second question, sir, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. Is there any uh, foreign, 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 foreign agencies yeah, getting involved? Thank you. Well, uh, let me just describe this. Um, the the for vulnerability of our digital footprint in elections has been known for several years. In fact, in 2016, the FBI estimated that over half of our poll books were penetrated by foreign interests. So this digital concern is real. The same digital concern exists with these companies that provide the machines. Most people don't know that most of the aggregation of the vote on election night, now these aren't the official results, but what the media reports and where the media claims a victor, which has significant impact, as you know, in how Americans perceive the election, right? That is all aggregated on Amazon World Services on the cloud. Now, that aggregation allows the media to pull down the data, but what's on the cloud can also be hacked. And if you go to many of these websites, official state websites, and you look at uh, the unofficial results on election night and you click on it, it's going to reroute you to a site that's hosted on foreign soil. That's well known. The company that is primarily designed, for example, with Clarity Elections, Clarity Elections is the hosting service for the company called Heart that provides one of the, a lot of machines around the nation. The software on the hosting side is done by a company called Cytl, S-C-Y-T-L. They're out of Barcelona, Spain. So there is, yes, plenty of evidence that foreign interests are tied into our digital footprint and how we manage elections. And that needs to be discussed and openly discussed in this nation, whether we want to continue in that fashion. Um, I believe that there's significant vulnerabilities. So we should go back, quite honestly, to paper. 
America was in the counting room in Bush v. Gore. We all got to look at the ballot and decide whether it was valid. And we can keep the paper. And we can audit the paper. And we can do so with efficiency. But the primary aim should not be efficiency behind closed doors. It should be transparency and accuracy. Paper gives it to you. Thank you all. We greatly appreciate your time.